0: Manchester's Science and Industry Museum is a jewel in the centre of the city, isn't it? Packed with the echoes of the Industrial Revolution. It's like a it's like a portal into the 19th century. You can almost feel the heat of the steam and hear the grinding noises of the churning machinery. Weave in fabric and weave in a city. A reminder that these streets that we walk were built in that time of booming industry and trade. But it was always that, a reminder of something past. now, a group of pioneering fashionistas are reviving the industry that made Manchester and leading the world again. It's just what we do. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. I'm Daryl Morris and Yoshi Herman is the creator and editor of The Mill, Greater Manchester's new quality newspaper delivered by email. Yoshi, hi, episode three. Episode three, we've made it
1: and got an amazing story today from Michael. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to come today and a lot of detail to chew through as well. It's been quite a big week uh, in Manchester, it feels, doesn't it? And a, A big week for the Manchester economy as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Loads going on, big announcements
0: on funding, important stories around transport and stuff. So we'll try and get onto those. All right, let's get into it. I will start with the briefing. Things are moving again. Students are back at university in Manchester and people are interacting with each other, shall we say, a bit more than we have done lately, if you catch my drift. The serious side of that story, though, is that more people are going to be turning to Greater Manchester's sexual health services and a fantastic bit of reporting from the mill this week has exposed a major problem in the system. Yoshi, how did we get to this story?
1: Yeah, so our reporter, Jack Fifield, he started picking up... The idea from people he was speaking to that there were some problems with the sexual health testing facilities. Effectively, in Greater Manchester, there's one service that covers Manchester, Stockport, Tameside, and Trafford, so it's the biggest one in Greater Manchester. It's commissioned by Manchester City Council, and then the other councils sort of throw in some cash to cover it. And it's actually delivered by the Manchester University NHS Trust. But this service, which is called the Northern, it's sends out home testing kits so that if you don't have time to go to an SDI clinic or you don't have the inclination to or you're embarrassed to for whatever reason, or maybe your community means that it wouldn't be seen as a good thing to be doing, you can get these home testing kits. And effectively, Jack has been investigating problems in that system. Um, And he's essentially revealed that it's not working. It's effectively completely broken down. Wow. Okay. As in people can't get tests? People can't get tests. So since the weekend, people have not been able to get tests via this NHS system in Manchester and Stockport, Tameside and Trafford. Before that, there was another problem which we've been sort of monitoring and measuring for a few weeks now, which is that even when you could get tests, they became available at 8.30am in the morning and they were all gone by, for example, half an hour later or 25 minutes later or 45 minutes later. We found, we used a sort of clever piece of software that effectively checks the form every, you know, whatever it is, 10 seconds. And what that did is it allowed us to put loads of data into a spreadsheet. How many minutes every day were there actually these home testing kits available? And on average, on weekdays, it was only forty-four minutes. So that means for the vast majority of the day, if you go on there, you are not going to be able to get one of these kits. And the trust admitted to us when we put in a free of information request that they are only giving out 60 tests per day. That was before the system completely broke down over the weekend. It's still down now. So if you go on the website now, on the Northern's website, and you want one of these home testing kits, you will not be able to get one. So what we're doing here is scrutinising how the system works. Clearly, it's not working very well. And Jack actually spoke to people in the LGBTQ plus community who have asked friends in London to send them test kits. So they can't get one in Greater Manchester and they're asking friends in London to send one because in London they have a very good system, unlimited every day, comes in three days rather than the two weeks it would come in here. So um, clearly there's a really deficient system here and I think it's important that improvements
0: are made. And, and, and the local NHS do say they are going to make improvements. Okay, fascinating story and a brilliant piece of journalism there from Jack. You can read more at manchestermill.co.uk. Yoshi, while we're on health, COVID figures, my friend, how are we stacking up? Yeah, so actually COVID rates are now falling
1: in Greater Manchester, only just. It's pretty level, but they're down 2.2% in a week. Uh, Rates are still highest in Trafford. They're lowest in Bolton out of Greater Manchester. But, you know, not much change at the moment, nothing dramatic happening.
0: Okay. Elsewhere, the Chancellor has delivered his autumn statement this week. You'll have probably seen plenty of this around. Lots of talk of levelling up, a fund for Andy Burnham to dive into, and some name checks as well for various places around the north of England. Here is the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, in the Commons this week
1: and today we're providing 5.7 billion pounds for london-style transport settlements in greater manchester the liverpool city region the tees valley south yorkshire
0: west yorkshire west midlands and the west of england okay lots of point scoring bravado yoshi what do we actually know Well, there
1: has been a significant bit of funding here for Greater Manchester. I mean, it wasn't the only city region to get funding. South Yorkshire got it as well. The Liverpool city region got it as well. But this is a significant pot of funding, £1.07 billion. This is the response to what Andy Burnham's team put in as a sort of levelling up Ask You know, they, Andy Burnham, got journalists together a month or two ago. And he said, we are going to be going to the government and saying we need some more cash to improve our public transport system. He wants to create this B network, which integrates rail with metro, with cycling, with walking routes, with buses. And this funding allows him to do some of that. I don't think it's going to allow him to do all of the things he wants to do. It's going to help with buying electric buses. It's going to help with um, new interchanges that we already knew about in Barry and Stockport. Um, It's going to help to increase uh, walking routes and cycling routes. But the big thing that's going to stop Greater Manchester from having a London-style public transport system is fares. And this is not going to solve fares. This is a capital investment to build things and buy things. The fares would need to be what's known as revenue funding, which is the day-to-day spending rather than the capital investment for the future. And there is no sign yet that Greater Manchester will get the kind of essentially subsidy from the government required to run a system that has fares on buses, for example, as low as London. And that is going to be the
0: game changer. Okay. Devil's always in the detail there, isn't it? And there'll be plenty more detail to chew through. I say this a lot on the podcast, perhaps arguably too much, but this is a story that we will come back to and we will keep an eye on, Definitely. I'm sure, over time. Another story, Yoshi, one that really stopped me in my tracks this week when I saw this in your newsletter, a really disturbing incident, Manchester's Reform Synagogue this week, Yoshi. What happened?
1: Yeah, really shocking. Over the weekend, Manchester Reform Synagogue was holding a uh, Zoom. And at one point in that Zoom, a bunch of people who were not supposed to be on that call, they unmuted themselves, they put swastikas on the screen, they shouted racist epithets pretty shocking attack and I think the community across Manchester, not just the Jewish community but lots of different religious communities have come out and said, you know, we can't stand for this, police are looking into it the rabbi um, at the synagogue has, you know, I think reflected on how disturbing it is for the local community it's its its a horrible thing and um, you know, whenever we have a mosque or a, a church or a, a synagogue that comes under this sort of attack or this kind of abuse, I think its it's deeply shocking for the local community. We had it in a mosque in Didsbury recently. we had it in a synagogue now just off Deansgate. But its I think it's good that the city comes together at moments like that and sort of rejects those um, those sorts of attacks. Okay.
0: Yoshi, for now, thank you. You can't walk very far through Greater Manchester without bumping into an old mill or a workhouse or a textile factory dotted around the place like the region's pillars, a constant reminder of the foundations on which this city is built. Some of them are enjoying a second life as a bar or a nightclub or an office block. Some of them lay hollow, but a few are now home to a new industry. Well, an old industry, actually. A new version of that old industry that made Manchester. Michael Taylor visited Private White VC, a luxury menswear brand, bringing one of Salford's old red brick buildings to life, and its pioneering owner, James Eden, for the mill this week. Michael, hi. Hi, Daryl. This story is right at the intersection, isn't it, of some of the big themes of this decade. We're talking levelling up, post-Brexit Britain, sustainability in the environment and the the cultural and economic identity of the north of England.
2: It absolutely is. Manchester was known in the 19th century as Cottonopolis. It was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, as we're all really fond of saying, but particularly cotton. And the story was that it was because of the weather, the climate, you know, the, the, the rainfall in Manchester. But... The business that I visited that's now inhabited by Private White VC, that business has been there through its various ownerships and incarnations in this mill just across the River Irwell in Salford, producing items both for the military or usually supplying major department stores, supplying them with clothing. And it's gone through all sorts of different changes. And now it's not a mill that's been developed for flats. It's not a mill that's been converted into, into offices or for storage. they're making world-leading luxury menswear that is worn by household names. I was just fascinated by what's going on in there and I wanted to have a closer look round. And I was lucky enough to be shown round by the owner of the business, a really, really remarkable character called James Eden. And I wanted to find out what made him tick, why he's doing what he did, because, you know, he he was a guy who was working in the city in London in finance. His life could have gone in all sorts of different directions, but... He's come back to his family-owned textiles business, and there's an amazing story about it. But you're right, Daryl, it also strikes to the very heart of what kind of city Manchester is and what kind of country Britain can be in the future. It's this intersection of issues, this perfect storm of immigration, of Brexit, of the collapsing supply chains, of the demands that industry had made of it because of COVID. And they're all there, and they're all in this piece. It's... It was quite a journey, quite emotional at times, actually. So tell me about James Eden then. Who, who is he? So James is from a, a family who was born in Bury New Road. He went to university um, away from the city. He then went to work in the City of London in a bank and in the financial crisis of 2008. The phrase he told me, he said, um, his body wasn't cashing the cheques anymore. And he wanted to get out. He wasn't fulfilled. And his family-owned business was going through a really tough time. I think they just had a contract cancelled where they were making clothing for Aquascutum, you know, a luxury, well-known global brand. And that put the very existence of the of the company uh, at risk. And he, he came back and he wanted to turn the business around. And, you know, he, he told me some remarkable stories about how they, how they had to pivot, how they had to change things. And then he came up with the brainwave of actually creating their own luxury brand. Rather than making them for Barber, Burberry, Aquascutum, or any other niche brands, he decided to create their own. And they called it after his great-grandfather, Private Jack White, who got a Victoria Cross in the First World War. And there's actually posters from Victor Comic all over the walls in in different places around, around the building of the story about... Private White yeah. and how he got his VC. So they, they've named a they've named a clothing brand after him.
0: Wow. Okay. So this is a, a luxury textile business based out of one of these great old buildings in Salford. It's a wonderful story full of romance. And Private White VC are actually quite highly regarded right i mean they they actually are a big international luxury brand with some high profile admirers they are and it's sold all over the world literally hundreds of countries
2: all over the world mm. where their goods are sold and there'll be business people or rich people who enjoy wearing these clothes who can spend 700 pounds on a peacoat or 2000 pounds on a goatskin jacket and it's really really nice gear don't i'll I'll I'm a bit of a menswear jacket fetishist, I have to say. But they'll come and knock on the door and they'll have a private viewing and they'll get measured up for bespoke items and also a number of celebrities as well. And the thing is, the staff love that. There's a really beautiful picture, which we've got on the piece, of David Beckham, mm. who comes back to Manchester, also in his role as an ambassador for the British... Fashion Council, and he's pictured with the staff, and you can just see the look on their faces that they're there with this this national well Mancunian icon. He might have been born in London, but you know he made his name in Manchester, didn't he? Yeah. And he's there with all the staff in the workshop, you know, looking you know sharp as ever. Yeah. And they're just dead chuffed to see him, and they buzz off the fact that Dermot O'Leary, when he goes on TV, he will be you know he's, he'll tag himself on his Instagram account mm. saying, "Here I am, wearing this Harrington jacket made in Salford." Yeah. And You know, all sorts of different people as well. Prince William, Prince Hans visited the premises as well.
0: And so this is where the story then starts to sort of trickle into the rest of Greater Manchester and the north of England, right? Because the really interesting thing about Private YVC is that 90% of their materials are sourced from within a 100-mile radius, from nearby. So we're talking about other companies in and around Greater Manchester who feed into this ecosystem.
2: Yeah, with the exception of the zips and fasteners, which are imported from Switzerland, all the items, all the fabrics are from pretty much the north of England and occasionally woolen items from Scotland because that was the great bedrock of British textiles and British industry. Yorkshire has probably retained its woolen industry in a way that Manchester hasn't retained its cotton industry. And they get suppliers and supply chains. So if they want some new items, if they want to tweak a piece that they're, they're working on, they can call their suppliers. There's one that James was telling me about, Malaloo's based in Delft, in Saddleworth, up in, in, in Oldham. Mm. They can say, look, can you just run something off the looms for us? A piece of fabric. Mm. They're not waiting for it to be shipped from China or Vietnam or Turkey. So it's feasible that this supply chain becomes tighter and smaller and it, and it starts to support this ecosystem of other businesses in and around the fashion business in the in the north of England and and it was from there that I, I started speaking to other people in the fashion and textile sector in Greater Manchester as well and seeing the potential and seeing you know their passion and their ferocity for what they want to achieve from this incredible, credible sector. Mm.
0: It really feels like we could be recording this podcast in the 19th century, <laughs> doesn't it? It doesn't it. You know, this growing ecosystem of, of of textile business growing in and around Greater Manchester with lots of different suppliers feeding in as part of this ecosystem in Greater Manchester is fascinating. Now, the only difference, of course, well, there's lots and lots of differences, but one of the main differences is that it's set against a backdrop of a fast fashion industry, some of which is based here in Manchester. There are some very famous high profile fast fashion brands here in Greater Manchester. What separates what Andy Ogden at English Fine Cottons in Oldham and James at Private White VC are doing against some of those fashion brands? Yeah, it
2: was interesting. So I went over to Duckingfield in Thameside to speak to Andy Ogden from English Fine Cottons. He gave me the real cook's tour. Absolutely amazing looking around Tower Mill in Duckingfield, which is. The only place in the north of England that is spinning cotton. Not just stitching together items, not just making clothing items. Lots of different fabric factories will do things like that. But they're actually spinning the cotton. I saw the bales of cotton, which have been imported from California and Australia, lying there. They do all the different processes to it, outrageously labouring unintensive my first question was where are all the people <laughs> it's actually it's a very mechanised and automated process now but actually the, putting the clothes together the hand stitching which I saw both at Private White VC and uh, English Fine Cottons in Duckingfield as well was a real craftsmanship and a real passion for creating quality items but it is a difference it is a big difference to the, to the fast fashion world and ultimately it comes back to the provenance of the goods where they're from who made them Who picked this cotton? And Andy Ogden was at great pains to tell me about all the different moves that are made in the cotton industry. They know per plot of land, the amount of pesticides, the amount of water that's been used for their item. They say it's not only better, but it gives responsible consumers a real sense that they're buying something that isn't degrading the planet, that they're making a really good sustainable choice. Mm. So yes, it's about the supply chain of the north of England, but it's also really importantly about the choices that people make for the good of the planet as well.
0: And so in here enter the Manchester fashion movement, right, who are a group of people who are campaigning for this kind of thing, for a sustainable fashion industry growing out of Manchester. Yeah. Who are
2: they? Yeah, I met these two remarkable women, Camilla and Alison, and they run something called the Manchester fashion movement and they both worked in, in, in corporate Britain in, in, in different roles. And they want to sort of push the idea about sustainable choices. You don't have to have as many items as you were. Andy Ogden quoted this stat to me that the average T-shirt is worn four times. Wow. And that's not a sustainable choice. And that people want to make quality purchases. They, they were pushing very much the idea as well about recycling and thinking of items as, as vintage rather than just secondhand just changing the language around it using the imagination that you can recycle pieces of fabric that you can recycle clothing items repair as well and and also help students who are entering into the fashion industry to make those sorts of responsible choices about what sort of fashion labels they might set up and what materials they might use as well yeah. so yeah i again a lot of these people didn't know each other i mean they will now because i love connecting people both you know <laughs> in order for me to have a story that i want to tell I also want to make these people know each other and see how they can help one another and see what might happen. And I used to work at a university. I want to, I want the fashion students at that university to be more connected to James Eden and, mm. and Andy Ogden and, and, and to Camilla and Alison as well.
0: Mm. So we're drawing comparisons here to the Industrial Revolution, to the 19th century, to that textiles industry that drove so much development in Manchester. Having dug into this story, Michael, and having been on this journey... What's your sense that this re-emerging part of Manchester, this re-emerging industry, has what it takes to be the next big, perhaps not as big as it was in the 19th century, but a big social and economic driver? I,
2: I think the big missing link in all of this, Daryl, and the thing that concerns me more than anything else, is industrial strategy. And I know that sounds like a bit of a geekish, wonkish term to be using on a, on, a, on a podcast, but... Both English Fine Cottons and Private White VC did receive government support and grants through a programme called the British Textiles Programme and something called the Regional Growth Fund. So they have had support to create jobs and sustain their businesses in this sector. You know They do both regard the support that they got as a lifeline. I think for that to be more sustainable in the future, there needs to be some industrial activism. There needs to be a direct policy that supports skills development, And, you know, we'll have seen this in the last week in the Chancellor's budget, we'll have seen different developments to support different sectors, but it needs that kind of intervention, it needs specialist funds, it needs, you know, skill support, and I'm not necessarily seeing that at the moment, because it needs to grow beyond just one or two or, or even half a dozen businesses.
0: Okay, fascinating. You can read Michael's piece in full. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you need to go subscribe and get the full lowdown on Andy, James and this fascinating re-emerging industry in Manchester. Okay, Yoshi, what's happening in the Mill newsroom this week?
1: Well, it's Halloween coming up and Danny is writing a great feature about sort of spooky folklore um, that was written about in the 19th century in Manchester. And she's found a really nice new book that sort of recounts some of those stories, including a water witch who lived by the side of the canals. So we've got that coming up this weekend. And in the next couple of days, we've got a great piece by Jack Dulhanty, who is writing about the kind of remaining old school Northern Quarter boozers, the pubs that are still going in the form that they were 30 years ago that haven't given in to the sort of tide of, I guess, gentrification, you could say, in the Northern Quarter, but just that, you know, these are pubs that on the one side they have a fancy hair salon and on the other side they have a vintage clothes shop and they're just sitting there with the same drinkers. And, you know, Jack's been telling me about his visits there. He's been chatting to the publicans, he's been chatting to the regulars. He's met a couple of regulars in three of the different pubs that he's been to. So it's going to be a really, really nice piece um, and we'll have that in the next couple of
0: days. Lots of great characters. Looking forward to reading that one. Now, every week on the podcast, we're going to point you in the direction of some things to do, see, watch, in and around Greater Manchester. Yoshi, what's going on at the Royal Exchange?
1: Yeah, so they've had a show called Glee and Me, which has been on for a while, and it's ending in the next few days. So if the last chance you get to see it is on Saturday, there are still tickets left, um, and it is, by all accounts, really interesting.
0: And there is a new BBC series at the moment as well, Yoshi, that links us back to a story we were talking about earlier. That's right. We were talking about the racist
1: abuse at the Reform Synagogue earlier. And there is actually a BBC show about sort of Jewish resistance to the far right in the 1960s. It's on the BBC iPlayer at the moment. And it was actually filmed, or part of it was filmed, at that synagogue. So I think for people who take an interest in in the community, in in, in the city, it's really interesting watch.
0: Okay, that's Ridley Road on BBC iPlayer, all four episodes there. And my nod for the week is a live show from a pathologist, which in a sense is a bit weird and a bit left field, uh, Dr Richard Shepherd, who is doing a live show at Sale Waterside on Friday this week. He's got a new book called Unnatural Causes. I've interviewed him on my radio show before, and he's a really engaging guy. He tells tales from his... um, 23,000 autopsies that he's carried out and some of his work solving the mysteries of unexpected and unexplained deaths. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. And he's not quite as grim and macabre as it sounds. (laughs) He's very engaging. Uh, Dr. Richard Shepherd at Sail Waterside that's it from us for this week. Yoshi, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks to Michael as well and thank you for being with us. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the Manchester Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. You know the deal, it helps other people find us and it means that we can keep making more. And plenty more where this came from in the Mill newsletter. News, events and deep dives into fascinating stories and interesting people. You can get yours in your inbox by subscribing at manchestermill.co.uk.